Hello there, and welcome to We Are The Makers. This is episode number three in a series commissioned by Sullis Nua in Washington, D.C. Standing here on the hallowed ground of the Hill of Tara, in the Indian summer heat of a late August afternoon, I'm happy as today is warm to be hosting another journey to the art of the matter with the makers as our guide. It's Misha Donald Deneen at your service. The reasons I'm standing here on the most consecrated spot in Ireland are manifold. Firstly, mixing the geographical with the entirely opportunistic, it's 10 miles exactly from this spot to the Solstice Arts Centre in Navan, a place I've been visiting throughout the month of July to see, and see again, the exhibition by Isabel Nolan called A Delicate Bond, which is also a gap. This spectacular show and the thoughts of its maker will be the main thrust of our investigations today. Isabel Nolan is an Irish artist who has made a mark on the world stage, having exhibited extensively to considerable acclaim over the past two decades. Hers is a practice which defies categorization, having carved out a singularly creative path for herself with uniquely diverse investigations across a wide range of media. There are so many strands to her practice, utilizing textiles, steel, pencil, paper, paint, and the written word. The scope of the subject matter is equally diverse, from the close scrutiny of literary and artistic works to wide-eyed explorations of the aesthetics of divergent fields from physics to cosmology. The irrefutable impact her work has made is the reason I'm here today. Her scholarly approach has been as insightful into the human condition as art can possibly be. It's a remarkable thing to say for someone working across a range of media, but Isabel Nolan has a signature style and a distinctive voice. She has so much to say, and we're privileged she'll be saying it exclusively to us for the next 90 minutes. Now, in real life, I don't actually know whether I'm coming or going, it's true. But each time I paid a visit to the Solstice to see Isabel's show, either on the way in or back home, I diverted here to Tara en route. It began unconsciously, but once I'd been to both places in quick succession, it began to make conscious waking sense in a number of ways. It's not just that the drawings of looping spirals and leaf-like lozenges in Isabel's show chime with the significant megalithic art of the ancient landscape of this sumptuous Boyne Valley, but something more than that. I've always felt that Tara is a place of the imagination, Without the aid of rocket power to catch a view from above, some magical thinking is required to visualise the extraordinary archaeology of this phenomenal place. And in as evocative a spot as this, only a thin veil separates archaeology from mythology, history from legend, and what is real from the imagined.
And just like going to a great show in a gallery, coming here is a sensory experience. It asks you something about how you're feeling, poses questions for some senses while filling up others. Echoes from an ancient past circulate here in the thin air, blurring the line between what is known and unknown. It feels like slipping through the veil between worlds wouldn't take much more than a stumble. I say all this because the only other force capable of seeing us safely through that gap into other worlds is the power of art. Now, it's only me making this connection, so take it at face value. But having sampled the joys of both experiences back to back, I can safely say that they both belong in a similar kind of dream time. It's a nebulous term, I know, but these are sensations not easily described. I'll try again. The effect of walking through Isabel's show and the feeling I get here on this hill are connected. It's just a different kind of magic, the old and the new. I don't really have the exact right words, so thankfully a critic called Martin Herbert does. This from his review of Isabel's show, Calling on Gravity at the Douglas Hyde. The outcome is a kind of mobilised reverie in which you don't feel the force of instruction, but rather give yourself up to a blissful, untethered drift and forget the paradox that someone has orchestrated this for you. Lest we forget and surrender completely to that untethered drift, it's high time, I think, that I should introduce you to that special someone. Those of you lucky enough to have heard Isabel Nolan give a talk will know that this is an artist who speaks from a very lucid, clear-eyed place about both the world and the place her work occupies in it. It's with great pleasure, then, that I hand over the reins to her. As is customary on this investigation into why makers make, we began at the very beginning. So my mom paints herself. She's a bit of a Sunday painter. Uh-huh. I had an uncle who was in graphic design. So there was yeah, the house in the house there was art books. It was yeah. like masterpieces from the Louvre or the greatest hits of the Musée d'Orsay and a bunch of other books. So my mom says that when we were very small and bored, she would give us those books to look through. Great, and they are in shreds. Mm. And then the other thing was then I think I went through a phase of and probably again with her encouragement of copying from those. So I made a whole bunch of watercolour versions of Impressionist paintings wow. when I was about nine. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So. Fantastic. So so that feeling of that kind of security of making something or, or, or expressing yourself in some way was there from the start. So really. Yeah. I mean, it was always, you, um, I think it was all from the response to I'm bored would mm. be to give us some paper. Mm-hmm. And some colouring yeah. pencils. Well, I mean, what is art apart from like a fantastic boredom, you know, aid, facilitator, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> destroyer. A way to kill time. Yeah. And and so so mm. was there a mentor or was there was there somebody or Oh well I had I went to a school, I was very lucky to go to a secondary school that had actually took art seriously. Wh- which school was that? It's called Sancta Maria. Uh-huh. And there was two art teachers there and they were both yeah, they were both kind of proper art teachers and really interested in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So my teacher was a woman called Mairead O'Byrne, who 
Yeah, there was just, you know, the it was that sort of thing at a certain point where one had access, privileged access, I think. I remember later in school. I think we were able to kind of go in there a little bit when we weren't supposed to gotcha. be in there Get, or didn't have, and kind of to finish things off maybe at lunchtime yeah. or something. Yeah. But mostly she was just a, um, a very good, very encouraging teacher. And so the school was sort of very good at getting people into our college. Mm-hmm. So every year there would be a few students from Santa Maria who would okay. get into NCAD. And that like that's so that's in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was an awful lot of people I know who went to school where art just wasn't taken yeah. remotely seriously, you know, so. Or, or Whereas that, they knew how to put together a portfolio. Gotcha. Kind of what was happening in there, do you kind of relate to that now or is it is it easily relatable? As in, can you can you say, that, oh yeah, that, that I was feeling it then, what I feel, or is that too yeah, big a thing to say? I don't know. I mean, there's... Did you have, okay, so was hmm. there kind of, revelations happening while you're in school or were you kind of just, you know, just doing it because it was part of the thing? In some, I don't think I ever understood art as being sort of something that belonged in the, connected to the world Mm -hmm. or that it was a way to think about the world until a lot later. Mm -hmm. So it felt like a kind of discreet, highly enjoyable activity. Mm-hmm. That was part of the curriculum. That was part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, make something related to this subject, yeah. do this thing. And so I never, I don't know that I saw art as being a sort of bigger way to think about the world yeah. until quite a lot later. I was probably very naive. I, de- I was very naive mm-hmm. even when I went to NCAD mm-hmm. and I was barely 17. And Whoa. um yeah, so I really hadn't a clue what art was or yeah, what art right. college was. Yeah. Um, I just thought that's what I wanted to do. The one thing that I do remember, <laughs> it's not particularly positive. I remember being very, um, what's defensive, because the teacher would come up and she would want to show you how to do oh, a yeah. line right okay. or how to correct something. And she would often, you know, work on someone's work. Oh, yeah. And Touch it. To, yes, yeah, and, yes. And I'd never let her do that. Okay. I hated people... <laughs> Going near my work from the age of about five. Yes. It's like, it's mine. <laughs> and if it's going to be wrong, it'll be wrong in my way Brilliant. and not so th- correct so th- in your way. Yeah. You know? So th- there's definitely things that were there. Then mm. from the, you know, that's, that's one aspect that mm. you could say. But I was, a, I, was a, I was probably 15 before I even knew or realised that you could go to art college right. or that, <clears throat> yeah. um, like I have one of my sort of slightly chestnutty anecdotes is about seeing an exhibition in the Butler Gallery. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time there was a painting called the Three Graces. So I could date it, but I don't know what it is. It's the Three Graces by Michael Cullen was in this group show. And I liked it. It's this pink, very vivid kind of jolly painting of mm-hmm. three wobbly nudie ladies dancing. And it was dated the same year that we were looking at it. And I went, oh my God, artists are people who are working. They're alive now. And I think <laughs> until then, and without ever having given it any thought, I yeah. assumed artists, art was all made by dead people. Well, yeah. And yeah. there was so, I mean, you know how these things get compacted into your imagination, into neat anecdotes. But yeah. that felt like a moment when I, there mm. was certainly some moment in my adolescence when I thought, oh, I want to go to art college. Right. Yeah. And go to art college, she eventually did. We'll talk a little bit about her time at NCAD presently, but something else that was happening during those teenage years, which still very much informs the artist she is today, was her strength of feeling 
for literature. But I was probably reading in a much more interesting way mm-hmm. and much more widely, and particularly fiction. Mm-hmm. I had a vast capacity for reading when I was a teenager. Really? Yeah. I like, could, like incessantly? Yeah, and would quite often have like three or four books on wow. the go. Yeah. And, and a mixture, but of... And, and so, so from early teens all the way through, that, that would be going on? Or, or, I mean, or? I'd been, I was like an avid reader from... Before that. The year dot, yeah. you know, as soon as I could. Mm-hmm. And being the youngest of four siblings, there was a lot of, and having parents who encouraged us to read, yeah. there was a lot of books in the house. And mm-hmm. we lived, uh, you know, the library was literally at the end of the road. And my sister actually decided she'd be a librarian when she was about seven or eight. And she <laughs> is a librarian. Wow. And she took very good care of her books. So she has a great collection wow. of children's fiction. Amazing. So I ploughed through all of that. But, you know, I was reading... You know, I think I read a Henry James. I've no idea what it was. Yeah. And then I read another four Henry James. Okay. And so I now have no idea which Henry James I've read and what I haven't or yeah. what belongs in what book or, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just that sort of rapacious mm-hmm. reading mm. that went on. Yeah. That's amazing. This teenage thirst for literature and acquisitive pursuit of knowledge has evolved to such an extent that it forms a significant part of Isabel's practice. And as we will find out, she applies the same adept artistry to her writing as she does to all her work. Before we go on to get an insight into her time at NCAD, here's an excerpt from one of my favourite essays from Curling Up With Reality, and one that's pertinent to the show we'll be talking about presently, Rock Formed Place. The slowed world suits rock. Plates are relatively restful. Glaciers retreat. Most volcanoes sleep. Compared to the days of devastating meteors, violent heat, cosmic faulting, heaving bedrock and dislocating collisions, life is still dreamlike. Under the flickering sky, rock is calm, present to the hum of Earth's uneven breath. The fitful in and out of the boundless sun's light and a strong, steady pulse of green and cold, green and cold, green and cold. Long independent of the oozing womb that contained untold numbers of siblings, rock, softened by the first fading of youth, is only lightly scarred and slightly worn. Rock, long indistinguishable from solitude, is the umphalus of a world that will grow unquiet and be repatterned. A world in a cosmos that will be unmade beyond even the recognition of rock's unrestrained complacency. Rock has no concept of movement, distance or time. Rock has no alternative but to face down the burning, blinking sun. Rock is place without thought. Rock formed place from Curling Up With Reality by Isabel Nolan. We're going to move on with the conversation now by delving a little bit into Isabel's time at the National College of Art and Design. There was parts of NCD that I really enjoyed, but it was, like I think I said earlier, like I was barely 17 when I went in and I was so naive. Mm -hmm. And I still thought at that point artists were probably people who made paintings and lived in Paris. Yeah. And so there was elements of NCD that, that were really exciting and then it was intimidating because you go from being probably somebody in the class who's one of the one of the girls who's very good at art <laughs> to, you know, you're surrounded by people who are 
at least as good as you and mm. often better. Mm-hmm. And so there was a certain excitement in it. I think first year was probably a little bit school-like and I still retained that, like stupidly, that sort of not realising tutors were there to mm-hmm. facilitate mm-hmm. learning, thinking they're, I'm going to get in trouble with them if my painting's <laughs> not good enough mentality. Yeah. And again, I hid in... I spent quite a bit of time in the library, which did me no harm at all. Mm-hmm. Good library. Brilliant library. So the Curling Up at Reality actually has a dedication to Eddie Murphy, the librarian okay. in the back. Yeah. And my sister, the two librarians yeah. in my life. I think it's a wonderful book to have in that library now. It's like, anyway, that's yeah. another, that's another story. But um, so spending lots of time in the library, um, but w- was there even in the early days or where were the kind of breakthrough moments there or, or were there? Any that I don't you can remember. Reco- I think, I mean, college, college is so much about people, mm. isn't it? Mm. And the people you meet and hang out with. And For sure. Um, I tried, I did try, you know, I sort of, I think sometimes when I talk about it, I tend to sound a bit bloody miserable, but I was having a really good time in some ways, Mm -hmm. but I was giving myself a very hard time at the same time and nothing was ever good enough. And I couldn't understand, like I never, I hardly ever finished things because by the time I was three quarters of the way through, I'd have decided it wasn't good enough or, you know, the, it had been done before way better by someone else. So what's the point, Mm -hmm. which is just, you know, it's just foolish. Like Mm -hmm. you're never going to do anything until you get used to the idea that, it's never going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't finish anything. And then I did start getting in trouble because mm-hmm. I never mm-hmm. had finished work to present. Mm. So I was going to drop out and my mother went absolutely mental when I even dared to suggest this idea. Mm-hmm. Cause I think we were, yeah, we, she would be, my parents would have been paying fees at that mm-hmm. point in time. And was this in first year? No, that was by the time that was around third year. Oh, And and see why and, she and my, a little bit. No, I know. <laughs> it was the end of second year. I think it was, oh, maybe it was midway through third year. I don't know. So yeah, I was full of my own, quietly full of my own sense of drama. And yeah. I wanted to drop out and do something else for a year. And you, maybe then I'd go back. Yet to be undone by a lentil. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I was pretty confused. And like yeah, the confusion right. was genuine. Yeah. And then there's some adole- late adolescent yeah. drama going on and stuff, you know. It's always been difficult to come up with ways to love the world we have made for ourselves. But we do have a capacity for finding beauty in meaninglessness. We love knowing stuff and we love to love. That, I think, is worth something. I told someone recently that I make art for the meek, right for the timid, though I am not sure if I mean for or on behalf of. Meekness is not a virtue I've ever heard being popularly extolled in any way that is not objectionable. Inheriting the earth does not seem an inducement to the constitutionally mild. It would surely entail a lot of responsibility and unsolicited attention. Meek is the kind of quality that lesser males desired in marriageable girls in the 19th century novels still read today. And although I am loud when drinking, chatty when excited or nervous, a bit bolshy when irritated or patronised, I still feel, especially in the context of the art world, pretty fucking timid. As a consequence, when I set off to do a show, to meet a stranger, to work with new people, to phone people I've known for fewer than five years, 
to sit at a dinner with people I've never met. I have to screw up my tiny reserves of courage and make myself do things that I would rather not do. Usually, I'm happy that I did. A few years ago, I took up roller skating on quad skates without toe stops, just so you know. Graduation from trying not to fall over to doing a decent crossover, skating slowly backwards and learning some dance moves. In a community sports hall in West Dublin, we skaters gather and skate and talk, amongst other things, about the pliability of different plates, wheel hardness and how beautiful each other's boots are. One evening, I took an unpleasant fall, coming down hard on one knee. I managed to wind myself with my own elbow. It could have been much worse. A wheel had caught on something as I drifted along. I lay on the floor trying to catch breath and the culprit was discovered. A single red lentil. This is the stuff of my stories. Skating is my idea of daring. Being undone by a lentil is my kind of drama. Not so easily undone. That's an extract from another essay on curling up with reality, undone by a lentil. One recurring theme in our series thus far has been the effect of serendipitous interventions by significant mentors during those crucial formative years as the artist finds their feet. Isabel's came in the shape of an unexpected trip to Italy, which had a transformative effect on both her work and outlook. I spoke to the head of painting and he very brilliantly um, suggested I do an Erasmus. And Erasmus was supposed to be an award for the people who were getting A's. Yeah. Um, I think you were supposed to be mm-hmm. a high achiever to go off. And I was a very consistent, I think, getting my D's in my studio. Mm-hmm. My, I was doing a kind of joint degree, so I was always quite all right at the essays and stuff yeah. like that, that art history side. Um, and he, yes, yeah, so I went off to Italy with a friend for three months and somehow free from my own Dublin demons, I worked my ass off and made so much work. Like the first thing I did when I got there, I remember was this satirical painting of the Pope, which in this <laughs> tiny Italian town that was full of people who were sort of treated Pray, art school, yeah. like a finishing school yeah. and... So, yeah, I didn't make many friends in the art school, but we made a lot of friends with the sort of sociology students from a local university. So I had an amazing time. I had a really great time. Which city? It's a place called Viterbo. Okay. Tiny town, tiny military town. Where? Um, sort of 200 miles north of Rome. I think it's not not super far from Orvieto. You were at the beginning of third year? That was the end of third year. End of third so year. So it was like, would have gone over in January or February for a few months. And so you've got another months. year to go uh, yeah. at here. And... And that's a big turning point. In a way it was for good and bad reasons. So I made heaps of work, took a few crap photographs of that work and then left it all behind, Mm -hmm. came home and failed third year because there was no evidence of Mm. all the work that I had done. Um, So then I had to, well, all of my friends went off to New York on J1. I spent the summer working in a pub and making a giant sculpture of a cow's arse being worshipped in the conservatory of our house. It's a little tiny glass extension. (laughs) And I duly got scraped my way into fourth year. So you presented this 
the giant. Out. Yeah. And I had, and I sort of, did, I finally did everything properly. Like mm. I was asked to do. I finished the work, even though I probably started thinking it was part of rubbish mm-hmm. before it was done, but I finished it and I had all my backup drawings and I had all the evidence of the work and I showed it and I explained why I'd made it. And so it, in some ways it made me a bit cynical because I thought, oh, well, that's how you do it. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're genuinely confused yeah, as long as you stuff to it. Yeah. do what you're supposed to do, mm. then you'll do well. And then fourth year was a really good year. And I got, I God, it's funny to remember all this. So, but I had a studio in fourth year that I shared with one other person yeah. in this porch cabin of um, Leinster Lane. And she was, she wasn't in very much. So I had the place to myself and I just, I felt sort of cynical and freed and I painted and I painted and I painted. Mm -hmm. And then it all, it sort of went right for me then. Mm -hmm. The lessons learned from these first dedicated periods of intense studio application still inform Isabel's practice today, where the value of continuous making is a hallmark. I was lucky to have been able to conduct these interviews in the inner sanctum of her studio, surrounded by an array of artworks in various states of construction and evolution. I dared not to look too closely at these works in progress, but just being immersed in them is a thrill in itself. Stepping in off the uneasy compromise mood of the Dublin streets in July 2021 to this place of calm and possibility was welcome sweet relief. We'll be discussing later how that ceaseless commitment to making works for her in practice, but for now, word on how that all-important bridge from college student to exhibiting artist materialised. Okay, so sorry, some of me and my people, um, we did a three-person show in the basement gallery of Dundalk and got a terrible review from the poet Vona Grork in Circa Art Magazine. I was a bit heartbroken. But we were in touch a while later and she told me she had been a bit harsh or that she maybe had read the work in a a way that wasn't generous. God, that's tough, isn't it? When you, at the first show, get a... uh... Yeah, I didn't mind because it was was funny. I thought I would mind desperately, but it probably made me think, oh, well, she didn't understand it. Mm, right. Feck it. Yeah, right. Good. She didn't get it. Yeah. Like, I think if somebody doesn't like your work and you feel that they've completely missed the point yeah. and that they're disliking it for the wrong reasons, mm. mm-hmm. then you go, screw it. Mm. If people dislike your work for reasons that are very close to the bone mm. of your own insecurities, that's a really different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it it turns out, because I think I'm a nervous wreck, but it turns out there must be some resilience in there somewhere. <laughs> and I mean, I, I think being bloody minded is yeah. one of the kind of key attributes for keeping going, even when you don't know why you want to keep going. And and being bloody minded is, is um, I mean, and also like in your essay, being timid too, you know, like there's, yeah. there's, it's, there's, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's those two things are very kind of like, you can be both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, um, and, and I think that's what, you know, when I'm t- telling you about what I get from the work is I get some kind of reassurance about it's how it's okay to be those things when, yeah. you know, but um, so anyway, the review, the show, the whole experience, did it shape you in any way or was it just a thing that happened that, and then on to the next thing? It was good. I remember we had a really fun night and some of our friends from like the tech crew and people that we worked with in IMA came up for the opening and we all went drinking on the train tracks afterwards. Uh, That's what I remember. I remember 
when we were installing the work, a traffic warden came down into the basement gallery and he stopped in front of this painting that I had made and it had this sort of ranting poem written on it and it had this drawing of a woman and she had big plastic googly eyes stuck to her head. And the painting it began with something like, I'm the fuck bitch witch. I can't remember. It was all this sort of slightly obscene kind of angry diatribe. And... Oh yeah, it was every morning when I wake up, I greet the world with hard eyes. Oh, I can't believe I remember it. Anyway, and it's all of this swearing. And he read it and I was mortified. I was hanging something else. And I just remember this. Your head in shame. I was just mortified, <laughs> conscious of his presence and him reading it. And then he said in a quite strong dog accent, I feel like that some mornings. Oh, beautiful. It was amazing. Yeah, 100%. And it was a lesson is, in terms of you yeah. know, understanding who your audience is or isn't. You know, oh, so. I love that. I love this story of how a crucial first lesson in surrendering your work to others could happen in such a profound and unexpected way. Only in Dundalk. Isabel had by this time taken up a position on the tech crew at IMA while spreading her wings and sharpening tools in expansion of her practice. Yeah, there was, I mean, I think, so at that time I probably, uh, learning from friends and having a bit more cop on, you start making things and putting things into open submissions and mm-hmm. stuff. And, and then I met a bunch of the sort of art people and scene up in Belfast and I was offered a solo show in a space there called the Proposition Gallery and that was really that was the first time I remember having that powerful sense of deadline so that was Mm -hmm. finishing work in Emma and going to the studio and Mm -hmm. painting and I made all of these uh, paintings in a I don't know how to say the word quindachrone violet black and white all of these uh, as a series of connected paintings and then it became about trying to work less in order to have time to make more art. You mean work as in the actual work? Money work, earning work, work. work. Yeah, yeah. So I went part-time in Emma. And then at a certain point, the next sort of significant thing maybe was I decided to try and do an MLIT in UCD. And that was really because I needed structure for reading. There was a certain kind of a mist reading certain kinds of critical theory or stuff that I wanted to give attention to and I knew I wouldn't just be able to read in my spare time so mm-hmm. I sort of okay applied to do a master's in UCD that's one way of making sure you, yeah. you, you read <laughs> and and that was great and so I, you, you did that I did that for a few years and I never finished it which sort of regret but not really mm-hmm. but I but it made you do and again that. it's another it's a bit of a chestnut but I well, actually, the first book that I remember reading was this uh, famous book. What is it? Erwin Panofsky's Perspective as Symbolic Form. And it took me a couple of months to read. And by the end, I got to it and I realized that it's all in the title. <laughs> I was going, shit, <laughs> that's all it means. Perspective is a symbolic form. It's like, and I understood it. And I was like, oh, God. And then I read another book that was really important to me called Downcast Eyes. I can't remember the subtitle, The Denigration of Visuality in 20th Century French Philosophy or something. And it's a it's a kind of brilliant book, but it took me almost a year to read because on every page, I'm a slow reader mm-hmm. when I'm learning anything, mm-hmm. when I'm reading academic things, I read very slowly. I just 
keep falling asleep a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but I would have to stop and check references so frequently. I would get through half a page and then they talks about Plato's cave and I go, what's that? And I'd have to go and read about Plato in his cave. Yeah. And then two pages later, there's another reference. I go, oh God, what's that? And I yeah. go, so it was a really unsystematic mm-hmm. and bonkers way to read. But I got through that book and mm-hmm. it was really interesting. And I was writing about nature and representations of nature in contemporary art. And I wrote quite a lot. And then I just really, it was a bit isolating doing a master's because you're just working independently. And I'd mm-hmm. see my supervisor sometimes, but there wasn't any sort of meeting with other students. And I just missed making stuff. And mm-hmm. that was, so I can't remember when I, decided to stop but I decided to stop and then probably a really important thing then that finally happened that feels like the beginning oh a couple of things work of kind of I made a work that was accepted for a show called Perspective that was in the Ormo Baths Gallery and that was a kind of important open submission show and it's a work that I made called Sloganeering and I'm writing on a t-shirt in it it's actually that piece ended up in Emma's collection, which mm-hmm. is really nice. And so that was a sort of, I think, beginning to feel like a person who was an artist as opposed to yeah. a former student who was sort of trying to pretend that I was an artist, right. you know, yeah. and hanging the work of real artists in Emma all the time and seeing real artists working mm-hmm. and not really feeling like one of those people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for quite a number of years. But again, that experience would eventually feed into you know your work as an artist yeah no it was great I loved like doing the tech work was a yeah. really good learning ground yeah you know for, for so many ref- different things yeah. so many different reasons including how to present your work I presume yeah and- absolutely watching I'm just even watching the interactions between curators and artists was really interesting yeah. and learning seeing how that- artists treat technicians is interesting yeah right know? okay yeah um and so then I applied for I made a very good friend through other friends in the artist Willie McKeown and I seem to remember Willie helped me out with doing an application to become to get a studio in Temple Bar Gallery and Studios mm-hmm. where we're recording now yeah and so I got my that was my first studio mm-hmm. I was here between I think 2002 or three in, in and a different five part or six of the building? yeah I was upstairs looking out the- looking out no and was on the street side of the okay. studios listening to busker sing power ballads Gotcha. And that was the first time I really... At, at the back wonder wall of the building. Oh, my God. <laughs> there was, yeah, problems with buskers in Dublin City. Discuss. Yeah. Um, so this building is definitely a part of the structural foundations of the whole journey, right? Yeah. It was a big part of it. And then, so that again was about, I, I finished in Emma a few years ago, but I, I was working for the Douglas Hyde, for Driocht, for Curlin a few different spaces and occasionally at the RHA installing work and things. And then it was kind of, um, I got a bursary and I was able to like give up mm-hmm. even more of that work and just be in the studio. Mm-hmm. And that was a really important. That's like the first, you know, that's the first time in my life that I was spending more time making work. Yeah. Than working. Than working. Yeah. To make. Working to make, you know, and, even though it's part time, but yeah. yeah. Working to make work, as we have already seen in the series, the making of art and making a living are more often than not mutually exclusive pursuits. Carving out a life where you can concentrate on the former is something only a select few will ever achieve. 
I thought it would be instructive to get some thoughts from Isabel on how exactly that came about for her. In 2005, I did an exhibition at the Project Art Centre. I wasn't. I'd done it. I had done a show in the Goethe Institute in 2001, and that was when I met various kind of curators and got to know a lot more people. You know, I'd met an awful lot of people through working as a technician because a lot of artists do mm-hmm. that. So you meet a lot of other artists. And when I, but when I did an exhibition around 2001, 2002, I think is when I started to meet more kind of curators and art worldy people who. I went on to work with. Mm-hmm. And so that's a sort of important moment, making those kind of connections and yeah. learning how things work and yeah. knowing how the world operates or how the Dublin world operates. Yeah. Um, and then 2005 was probably a significant year. I mean, I'd been, I'd been, I was an artist at that stage and had exhibited a fair bit and been in a few really nice group shows mm-hmm. and things. Um, but I did an exhibition at the Project Art Centre that was probably like the first sort of widely attended to. And I think, you know, yeah, probably got my name out there a bit mm-hmm. in a certain way or something. Mm-hmm. And what was the name of that? Everything I said, let me explain. Okay. And that was with the curator Grant Watson. And what was in there? Um, I'd made a video, uh, kind of an animation, just a hand-drawn colouring pencil and text work. Quite simple, technically. Um, And then that year, I was also asked to be part of the group show at the Venice Biennial. Oh, yes. 2005, right, yeah. A really big year. Was what you did in the project related to what you showed in the the group show? Yeah, I showed... Yeah, I showed the same animation and mm-hmm. a number of the same drawings mm-hmm. along with... No, no uh, sculpture or, or no, 3D? And or... No, and that was the next thing that happened. I sort of made my first sculpture uh-huh. as a proper grown-up artist Yeah, in a long time. I'd shown a sort of a slide projection piece in IMA in a group show, How Things Turn Out. But I'd predominantly been working on paintings and drawings for a long time at that point. Mm -hmm. And then I did an MA that was actually based in Temple Bar through IADT. And I made a small exhibition in Studio 6. It was just on for a few days, I think. And I made a sculpture for that with fiberglass Mm. and a mirror. And it sort of stuffed a dog that I'd made out of an old towel. Yeah, that was called Together at Last. And that was <laughs> That was the beginning, Together at Last of Together of at Last. That yeah. was the yeah, that was so that was the first sculpture. I love that. Title. I made as a grown up yeah, sort of artist. artist. Right, yeah. So that felt like a you know The titles of Isabel's pieces are generally taken from the top shelf of artwork nomenclature, but Together at Last is a particularly inspired, not to mention audacious title, for your very first sculpture. It's another example of how that beautiful way with words of hers has served the work throughout the journey thus far. Now, having finally made it to the Biennale myself in 2019, and having been utterly overwhelmed and simultaneously thrilled by the scale of it, I want to dwell a little on what the Venetian experience is like for the artist. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was really positive. I was like thrilled to be asked to be part of it yeah and like every artist in it is was great is great yeah you know so it was a really 
brilliant group of people to be associated with. Yeah. And it was, I was terrified. And it's funny now when I think back because I, I think for weeks, such a baby, like, but for weeks, if not months beforehand, I'd wake up and I think actually throw up a lot of mornings. I was mm-hmm. so anxious. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember it's funny because even with the writing, I mentioned Willie McKeown earlier mm-hmm. and Willie is probably the person, I think he's the first person who asked me to write something. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know why he asked, but he did. And he asked me to write something about his work. And I think I spent about six months writing this, like doing nothing else, but writing this thing. I was, you know, doing other bits and bobs, like working a bit, mm-hmm. but I put so much time into writing something that nowadays you'd probably put a bunch of thought in, but then write it in a week or two. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was like laboring away. Mm -hmm. I'm gesturing, typing, (laughs) (laughs) frantic typing. Yeah. And I remember being terrified about having to give a talk about his work. And that was, I spent so long like preparing this talk about his work and then wrote an essay or something. But again, with Venice, yeah, I was just terrified. I mean, maybe I shouldn't focus on these things, but I was waking up I think that's really with interesting, my stomach so. in knots mm-hmm. with the idea of Venice and mm-hmm. and I would get a little bit sick and then I'd carry on working. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it seems insane to me now in some ways, but I still get very nervous. But thankfully, mm. I managed to compact the nervousness into much shorter periods of time or, you know. But, but like one thing about, you know, reading the book and reading the book, right? I get this real feeling of 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 there being of the anxiety and the nervousness and the fear and all of those things really being incorporated into, you know, your, you know, into yeah. it, it, as, as, and again, maybe that's why I'm so reassured by it. That, yeah. that I feel similarly, I'm an absolute nervous wreck, yeah. but it's more like, um, cause even when you were talking about, you know, we'll say the college stuff and that, like that, I guess becoming an artist is, is part of, part of that is, is accepting who you are and then putting, I guess, incorporating or who you are, you know, using all of those things or them being part of, you know, accepting who you are and it being the thing and and letting that become whatever it becomes. But, um, well, I guess, I mean, that's the thing I was never, and I still am in strategic and I was, but partly because I didn't know, what it was that I wanted other than to be an artist and to be making stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the kind of bloody mindedness comes in again, but it wasn't, and I'm ambitious and I always have been ambitious, but never in a, as I say, in a highly strategic way, yep. like going after things or knowing what I wanted. Mm-hmm. But so everything has happened and maybe it doesn't make for the best stories because everything has just sort of happened in a kind of, generative, you know, it's like this accumulation of experience and there wasn't like a moment of revelation of knowing this is the kind of artist I want to be. Yeah, It was, it's always figuring it out. And I always remember feeling like things are at your fingertips. I remember talking about that a lot at one point or that feeling of being slightly out of your depth and actually getting worried when you don't feel a little out of your depth, you know, that's where you want to be. Yeah. But it's not that I'm trying to push this crap metaphor. I'm not trying to swim somewhere in particular. <laughs> I just like noodling yeah. a bit out of depth yeah. and and seeing what kind of comes out of that. So everything, all the work that I've done and all the writing, it doesn't, it was, it's like, it was amazing to me to put the book together and go, 
God, I did quite a lot because mm. it just sort of feels like I'm only responding to the two months in front of me at any one time. Yeah. So when things, people ask you to do something that's far away, it yeah. just is like, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I can only make a face to express my sense of, but that, that's a year away. That might never happen. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. What do I have to do today? What do I have to have done for next week? Mm-hmm. Or I'll be in trouble mm-hmm. if I don't have that thing done. Actually, I did a, had a conversation with someone else recently, and I remember I talked about reading as being the kind of solidarity of the confused. That's fantastic. And that's like, I know the nervousness isn't going to go away, and I'm never going to wake up um, and be an artist who thinks that they have really important things to say and I'm going to make these things and put them in the world and I want people to listen to my important message. It's much more a sort of, un- does this, does the is the world there? Is what's going on? Do I, st- oh, I still exist. I have to do something today to get through today and let's see what happens. Oh God, somebody likes it. That's great. Somebody wants to do a show. Brilliant, you know, and it's just a kind of, mm. yeah, it's, but that seems to, it seems to work in that there's, I've managed somehow to generate enough momentum mm-hmm. to keep going and to have other people ask me to do enough things. Yeah. Still, it to, goes on. To, to yeah. keep yeah. the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keeping that ball rolling has never been a problem for Isabel. That ongoing commitment to continuous making, combined with her insatiable curiosity, has yielded a staggering output of work across a range of media. Whether it emanates from the solidarity of the confused or not, there's a level of bravery and fearlessness involved in her approach, which she might deny, but it is undeniably there. Believers in the power of art, myself included, will testify that one person's determination to make sense of the world in original and supremely creative ways is all it takes to alter the perception of that same world in the eye of the beholder. The subjectivity of human perception renders these connections personal and it's exactly that feeling of being spoken to directly, of being cajoled, convinced, alarmed, surprised, consoled, or simply taken for a ride that keeps us going back to exhibitions. Not specifically to find answers. Sometimes shows work because they throw up more questions, but simply to immerse oneself in the kind of open-ended spirit of investigation that drives the best work and makes for the most compelling spectacles. That same spirit is a defining feature of an Isabel Nolan show. I love how Luke Clancy put it, reviewing her 2007 exhibition at the Carlin Gallery, This Time I Promise to Be More Careful. There is more than a hint of the adolescent bedroom to Isabel Nolan's work. But for the Irish artist, the bedroom is a space that opens up directly onto the universe, negating the need for jet propulsion and spacesuits or the manly evils of the military-industrial complex in her exploration of the hallucinatory enormous and angrily complex. Mere mention of the hallucinatory enormous and angrily complex is sufficiently bombshell to bring the backstory section of this episode of We Are The Makers to a close. 
time now to focus our attention on a delicate bond which is also a gap, a show that very definitely pitches up between these two terms of reference. Isabel herself has called it her colourful tribute to the early days and future death of Homo sapiens. Spoiler alert, we're all doomed. Of the 22 pieces in the exhibition, four are tapestries. A pair of towering Loven Mensch or Lion Men preside over Room 1 like the ancient sentinels they represent. The Loven Mensch figurine is a 38,000-year-old prehistoric ivory sculpture discovered in a German cave in 1939. It's hard to get past these two imposing textile renderings in their coats of extraordinarily vivid colours, but once you do, an even more impressive textile work governs the middle room. The three-metre-tall Miracle Wave 2698 BC is a reimagining of the swell that engulfed St Cuthbert on the island of Lindisfarne over 2,000 years ago. As if these three weren't impressive enough, the fourth tapestry at the end wall of the third room outshines them all, perhaps an ill-chosen verb to describe a work that depicts a burning world at the mercy of an exploding sun, entitled When the Sky Above Will Not Be Named. These artworks are impressive enough to take your breath away on first viewing, but sufficiently nuanced, layered and captivating to put air back into your lungs long after you leave their presence. I was keen to find out as much as possible about the process of how these stunning artefacts were made, but not before finding out the inspiration behind Miracle Wave. So for Miracle Wave, I'd made this quite large colouring pencil drawing of this image that kind of been haunting me a little bit, this idea of the classical building being overwhelmed by this wave that in my mind has existed since, you know, the late 600s. And I mean, the reason, the one thing I'd say about the miracles is I'm always I'm interested in all of those depictions of miracles and you get this precise moment when the miracle is unfolding. Yeah. It's like, what happened before and what happened after, you know? <laughs> and where did the wave go after it had Great. finished cleansing St. Cuthbert or, Fantastic. you know, these things. And it's yeah. just this, there's something quite beautiful about just thinking about the before and after of and there's they're very particular about what constitutes a miracle and what yeah. doesn't and there's lots of grades of miracles and so I'm trying I was trying to figure out what a miracle was for a while and then this idea of um making this drawing of the wave overwhelming the classical building came to mind so I made the drawing but then that shift from seeing it in the exhibition space yeah. and the smell Right. Of a rug, a new tapestry. Like you could really smell it in the third space in the solstice on the first day of the show. Mm. I I, I did get that smell yesterday, you know. Oh, really? It's still there, yeah. Yeah, sure. Love that smell. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, it's just such a thing that like, you know, when you were talking about your, 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 your research with nature and art and stuff like that. I mean, there's something in there about organizing the world in such a, you know, as in, Mm. I don't know seeing how that works or, or seeing these things come together and all the effort it takes and all the bits that it takes and all of the, you know, the individual parts and then what happens. I mean, that in itself as a process is just so fascinating on a scale that I think nature fascinates. Well, it's um, funny because you're just like a lot of the time working away on your own in the studio and it, it is this sort of like, there aren't that many moments that feel dramatic. Mm-hmm. In terms of production. Yeah, right. You know, you're you're whittling away. Yeah. And you're getting on with it. Away. Yeah, exactly. And even like within that exhibition, the the twelve drawings I've shown, like I I didn't even know that I would exhibit any of those or uh-huh. that they were 
work, it was a little bit like kind of, I had to do something yeah, or I would getting through absolutely or, or, yeah. lost my mind yeah. during the kind of yeah. hardcore lockdowns. Yeah. So I'd sit down at the desk often like just at night, you know, yeah. turn off the telly and my partner gone to bed and work for a few hours quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really didn't know that I would, I was making things that I would want to exhibit yeah. and they felt so that's, so, you know, and then when you put them, so I probably had about 20 drawings maybe that I selected from, but then when you finally see the chosen ones and they're in frames and hanging mm-hmm. on a wall, all of that kind of realizing happens incrementally mm-hmm. and separately. Yeah. So for me, the exhibition coming together is the first time when you're seeing an awful lot of the things, Yeah. you know, it's the day before the show opened was the first time we saw the rug. It only arrived yeah. on a truck the Thursday before the show opened. So there's no time to live with the finished yeah. stuff. Do, doesn't, doesn't the blind faith, isn't there like a, a big part of, of, of sort of believing it's going to work together is, is, is that some sort of faith in yourself or uh, bloody mindedness maybe or something? You know, I mean, yeah. like you can't fully know, right? Until no. no, and I think that it, it, there, there has to be that. And mm. I, I, like it was a really great moment when... Because we, you know, we kept postponing uh, visits to the space. You know, myself and Belinda were talking. Like, will it come down? And then suddenly the numbers would get bad. And you're like, okay, yeah. not going to come down this month. Not going to come down this yeah. month. So we finally went down to see the space at the beginning of May. And just, and I had seen it before, but not for quite a long time. But just that happiness of pacing around an empty gallery mm-hmm. and wondering where you might put things. Mm-hmm. It's real. Mm-hmm. It's real excitement in that. And I can testify that the excitement felt by the artist upon being allowed into the space was palpable in the finished arrangements and indeed was a feeling that lingered in the space throughout the run. No mean feat. Excitement is a good energy to go to work with. Isabel has talked about how making work and shows involves managing that build-up of desire while creating the right conditions for it to bloom. There's a lot involved, keeping each and every plate spinning till showtime. I started out the episode on the Hill of Tara, talking about how an ancient place can spark the imagination. But it's the artist's lot to evoke those feelings from the ground up. I think it's easily missed just how daunting it is to begin with a blank space. One way of managing the multifaceted pre-production nerves is to concentrate on the detail, and there's always plenty of that to be honing in on. Time and again, in chatting to Isabel, I was reminded how much satisfaction she derives from the joy of making. Simply because they are at once so expansive and phenomenally detailed, I wanted to hear more about the making of the tapestries in the factory in Burgundy and the process involved in getting the images ready for their material transformation. I basically had to make a black and white line drawing version with all of the detail of the foam and the waves and all of the different shifts in colour. So Mm -hmm. you make that black and white drawing um, and I do it in a really ridiculous labour-intensive way that probably somebody with technical mm-hmm. know-how would show me how to do it on a computer in 10 minutes. But anyway, yeah. I still use tracing paper, let's put it that way. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so I make the black and white drawing and then it's sort of like about giving a, another drawing that's a basically a colour by numbers. Mm-hmm. 
and I have a whole library of kind of palms, of little woolen palms mm-hmm. at this stage. Oh, so then so I, for the wool, right. I identify ah. what color wool I want to go where, oh, and we right. have a kind of shared number system wow. that we use for that. And then I'll indicate if I need new colors for certain areas or not. And each area is usually two to three different shades or two shades mixed to, like in different proportions. Yeah. So I have to map all of that out and indicate then also where each of those colors is to go in the drawing. So then I print out large, a large backwards version of it because they'll work behind. Wow. And then for them, they have to then get all of the wools together. And if you, if I give them long enough and there's new colors required, they can get the wool dyed to the new color. So it's a really, but Where they also the have, it's in Burgundy in France. It's beautiful. It's in the middle of nowhere, surrounded kind of by vineyard, vineyards and vineyard, vineyards. And, um, and it's amazing because they've got something like three or know, 5,000 colors in stock at any one time. So you, I've gone there a lot and it's just, it's such a treat. Um, while, while your tapestry is being made and, and yeah, being in there, yeah. you're, you're allowed to do that. So I'd go, sometimes I might go at the beginning if I really need to find a whole lot of new colours, like the two Leuvenmensch, the line men. Okay, because like the second one of those, the colours are just like insanely Yeah, different. yeah, no, it's really because that's like, one. That's, I, that's me, me and Oda, we, my daughter... Like, I think that's possibly, I, I don't want to say favorite piece because there's so many okay. that I love You're... there. But like, that just, it's fucking mind blowing. Yeah, no, I was really love mentioned the moon. So that's when I went over before it began because I wanted to use these really deep colors, but yeah. I didn't want to just use black or mm. dark blue. So all of those really dark tones are comprised of three quite different, slightly unexpected. I'm very glad that you noticed because you get so obsessed with those things. And yeah, so I put together some, yeah, some really odd shades of kind of dark brown, So you, you, you can do that in burgundy and you can kind of, yeah. in that, it's, it's a factory. And they'll help me find, you know, the colours, obviously, and sometimes we'll suggest things. It's so wonderful being in that. Yeah. You know, no, it's a fascinating in, in a place. shop or whatever the word is. Oh, completely. You know, you know what I mean? As in like, wow. I know. And like the first rug that I made, <clears throat> I sent them like a coloring pencil drawing. And they just sent me some images of the work in progress. And I didn't have any input into what colors they would choose. I didn't understand it oh, at right. all, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then uh, that was the point I realized, oh, they're using like, three different shades of green to make to make that one yeah. shade of green and that was sort of that was a huge sort of revelation so mm. the work actually turned out way more interesting and better even than I could have imagined it so that was a sort of um, that puts you in your place a little you go oh there's so much to know here that mm-hmm. I don't know As this is a series about making, it would be remiss not to highlight the virtuosity of these incredible craftspeople from Burgundy. I know I'm doing a little dance about architecture here, because of course seeing is believing when it comes to these tapestries and all artwork, but there's something about the way the ancient and modern intertwine in them that is captivating. It's all in the weave. Before we abandon our conversation about them, the origins of the Lionmen sculpture and its significance as the oldest known uncontested piece of figurative art is something I thought worth probing a little further. I'm really interested in this idea of repurposing something that has already been reassembled from fragments itself. 
I mean, that's something that's always interested me in the way that we're left with certain parts of our ancient past or, you know, um, old cultures. And what remains of them is feels very monolithic mm. and still very present in the world. Mm. And we're really aware of it. And obviously that shifts with fashions, doesn't it? You know, mm. and there's, you know, phases of movies about the Romans or something. And then there's all those parts of the world that have disappeared or, you know, sort of resurface in fragments. And I guess it's very tantalizing, mm. isn't it? And there's something about that love and mention. I mean, I could, we could just do a whole conversation about it. Yeah. If, you know, probably be better to have that conversation with an archaeologist. Yeah. But in terms of, and there was actually a BBC program about it, which I didn't, I missed, but apparently it was pretty good. And it's about the discovery of, the fragments just before World War II and the archaeologist who discovered them in the back of the cave go off to war and then somebody returns to the cave and gathers more fragments and this. So there's this process of gathering the fragments and... While the world is falling apart. While the world is falling apart. Well, I mean, it was suspended. I don't think anybody went there for 20 odd years or okay. 25 years after the original yeah. discoveries or something. I don't, I'm terrible on dates, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't until the kind of late 80s that somebody took all these little shards of ivory out of a drawer. But it's sort of, it feels like the re-genesis of Lion Man mm. began on the eve of First World War. So it has this whole second life. And then there's another, I wrote a bit about Lucy, you know, the skeleton. Um, she's what, 3.2 million years old? Oh, right, yeah. And she's an Astropolitica, Astropoliticus afarensis. So it's like Lucy has had this whole second existence yeah. So she was about 12 and that would have been a mature young adult when she died. And she walked, she was bipedal and they know this because she had knocked knees, which I think is a really beautiful little detail mm. and an extraordinary insight that somebody can have that you can recognize mm. that this, these fragments of skeleton can tell you so much still is yeah, very beautiful. <laughs> about your gait. And I just think that that's magic, that she ha she now exists again and she's this incredibly important artefact. Yeah. She lives in, I mean, it's Ethiopia. I can't remember the name of the museum where she is, but in the Ethiopian language, her name is Dinkanesh, which means you are marvellous. Wow. Which is a much better name than Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> Dinkanesh in the sky with diamonds. You know, there's like, there's so many different things in within culture and that's, like that's maybe something about the fact that I cherry pick these things and I put them together yeah. without, because it's sort of, I'm finding poetic connections between these things rather than really having a sort of fundamental regard for, I mean, I have regard for their significance, but it's about sort of repurposing that yeah. significance to my own kind of poetic ends. Beautiful. I love that idea. And also, I mean, the idea of there being a second life, I mean, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that's what I kind of felt about, you know, when I met them in, in the solstice at the exhibition that I felt that as well, you know, that this power continues or has been repurposed and has, you know, is evident. Yeah. Um, no, and there's an awful lot of information that doesn't get included in the exhibitions and yeah. in the works, but it's just a way of kind of activating those objects again for me that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they lead me to want to make certain kinds of work and I make those works. But then it, it's also, it's an open invitation, I think, for people to, Hopefully go away, maybe and Google Love and Mensch. Or, yeah, yeah. Because he's worth Googling. Yeah, he's I was one of those people. Yeah. <laughs>
In 2019, I was already thinking about how the past shapes our lives and offers us wonders and warnings that we don't trouble to notice. And I was already thinking about the future ruin of human meaning. I can't recall a time when I wasn't. The long-term threat of cosmic annihilation, not so distant climate change, another even more consequential pandemic, or the evolutionary or existential pressures that AI might bring to bear. It could go on. But any psychic distance from such subject matter was eroded by the uncertainties, practical and emotional, that permeated much of 2020 and 2021. For months at a time over the last year and a half, I no longer enjoyed my usual dependence on art. I'm not interested in art that deliberately sets out to offer succor or easy beauty. Normally it is the awkwardness that art has to offer, a slipperiness and peculiarity that squares up to the weirdness and difficulty of life that attracts me. But when day-to-day -day life itself became so drastically inconvenient, it became both impossible to avoid the news and hard to care about the demands of art. Yet, it's only through making work that I can seem to figure out what it is that I am feeling or thinking at any given time. So there is like, that's what you were just saying, right? About that, what, what these things do is that they reverberate. And then mm. when, when sort of cast in a new light, those reverberations can be even stronger or become strong again, or, you know. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes with, you know, you don't quite know why you're drawn to an object and yeah, exactly why reverberate, mm. I think is the right word, but they just sit with you for a while. And sometimes I feel like sometimes I do feel like I'm really discovering something and I'm having an extraordinary insight. And why haven't the archaeologists had that insight and yeah. written about Love and Mention this way? And then I realise that it's really... It's A, not that extraordinary, and B, largely kind of fanciful, or rather, it's not even that it's fanciful, it's that I'm remaking the objects to in my to my own worldview. Mm. I'm seeing them. Mm -hmm. So I've been wondering for a really, really long time at what point did humans start to see the earth and the sky as sort of separate mm -hmm. territories almost. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's one of the kind of subjects I'm constantly returning to is the state of in-betweenness in mm -hmm. which we seem to think or think of ourselves as. Yeah. And whether that's in a kind of Christian kind of we're fallen angels or, you know, that we're kind of meet with souls is what some people might think or. Okay, I like that. Or whether I'm I'm going more in favour of a kind of contemporary uh take that's probably what's the word inflected by quantum physics mm -hmm. and I see our intelligence has kind of been emergent from matter but I mean that's a hugely contentious mm -hmm. philosophical issue I think mm -hmm. it's called the hard problem and I don't really understand it mm. but everything sorry I'm going off the point completely but everything you know when I look at line Lovenmensch line man line human as I like to call it um you know, initially there's this sort of, there's the Wikipedia mm -hmm. reading and kind of recognition that this is something quite magic and quite potent. And then there's a certain dissatisfaction with people talking about this in terms of it being a spiritual a manifestation of some kind of nascent spirituality amongst humans or a symbolic object. 
And I think I just have a slightly contrary nature. And I'm, I'm sure I've encountered other people writing these things, but I don't go away and read a vast corpus of literature. I work off my gut a lot of the time. So I just got obsessed with the idea that this figure, this first, well, this incredibly early figurine is made upright. And it's so puzzling to carve an animal standing on two legs or to carve a human with an animal head. Mm-hmm. It's such an extraordinary thing to do. And how did someone think to do that? Or, you know, even if they're copying, even if Lion Man is a copy mm. of something that was, you know, kind of prevalent in those times, when was the first, like, who, who did this? It's such an amazing and beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, so I guess I'm responding to the kind of artistic dimension yeah. of it. And just the fact that it demonstrates this extraordinary imagination. Yeah. That's enough for me. Mm-hmm. I don't need it to be a symbol of a spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. So I get angered then. Mm-hmm. So I want to take take it out of that context and then make it into something that for me, yeah, kind of bridges bridges the earth and the sky. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether the earth and the sky had already been separated in a kind of mental way at that time or not. So I have, I think I, I wrote it in the book somewhere. It's sort of, it all plays into my kind of fantasy I have that's a kind of secular fantasy of some idea of humans at some point in the past feeling of the world mm. in this uncomplicated way that we didn't see ourselves as being somehow kind of slightly separate to nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Um, when it comes to that that thing that you admire or that you you have a feeling for, the, the artist who made that and who had that leap of the imagination... Um, something you said, Isabel, about like, you know, the buildup of desire that's involved in in making something or, or making those things. Um, I was just really interested to know, I mean, like, is that part of like what's, you know, when it comes to making art and, and the fact that you have to kind of go through that process, is, is that something that's like... Um, I'm just really interested in in kind of knowing or sorry, finding out if there's moments when it's absolutely not building up and you're still making and how that kind of works or, you know, do you have to struggle with that or is it something that? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, there is, I think there is a certain, like certain things take a long time to percolate or to figure out what the, like I had a notion that I wanted to make a rug yeah. In sort of the mid mid to late 2000s, but I didn't make one until 2013. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I got interested in this statue of John Don that I've written down. I've written about quite a bit. First saw it in like 2011, I think. And I didn't make work about it till 2015. Um, so I think I'm a very slow thinker yeah. at times. And then to do sort of the other part of the question is, yeah, I mean, I have very fallow periods and very anxious yeah. periods of thinking I'm never going to have another idea. And, but I, I somehow, I generally am kind of working away on something, even if I think it's rubbish, mm-hmm. there's always sort of something that's going on. A, a kind of, a kind of muscle memory that's still operating. I get, I, yeah, it's a funny one and it feels odd to articulate it, but I do, I get very tense if I haven't done anything with my hands in a while. Noticeably in physically tense, yeah. Yeah, yeah in, right. a, in a sense that I don't, and I get 
I go through phases of being quite angry as well. And I often think I want to make really angry work. <laughs> and I go to the studio and end up making these very colourful drawings. <laughs> Don't look. So I'm not, it's not about actually translating those feelings. It's more, I get this sort of pent up... Mm. And I don't, I don't know what it is, and it sounds mm. slightly daft to say it out loud, but I do get very tense if I haven't. And uh, sorry, the reason I know this is more to do with that I don't necessarily recognise that, oh, I'm tense, I need to go to the studio. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. more I've been quite tense and angry, and then I'm in the studio and I yeah. paint for three hours. Yeah, yeah. And I suddenly feel incredibly relieved. Right. So I haven't quite learnt how I operate yet, but yeah, I can yeah. recognise, if you know I what know, I mean. I think we're all still learning there. Again, it's a recurrent theme in our investigations in the series so far, but clearly, for their sake and ours, makers must make. It being a series about the value of the same, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time now on the remarkable story of Mari Lieb, which was the inspiration behind the assembled collage in the second room of the exhibition, This collage consisted of 154 pieces of steel tube of various lengths, each hand-stitched into fabric. The Mary Lieb story which inspired the piece is one to bolster the most ardent belief in the power of making. But first a word on that collage itself. Yeah, that work, it's called An Indelicate Arrangement, a high entropy rug for Ludwig Boltzmann. And it was... It has a sort of predecessor, which it's called, has a very long name, but it referred to it as the provisory rug. And they emerged, it, that work emerged after I had seen photographs in a book of outsider art, the Prinzhorn Collection, a very famous outsider art collection in Heidelberg. And a woman in the 1890s in a psychiatric institute tore up her bedclothes I think it was her bedclothes anyway, and she tore all of this fabric into strips and laid it out on the floor in these very particular patterns. So she made this extraordinary kind of rug-like intervention on the floor of this institution. And there's two photographs that survive from the period. Mary Leap was her name, and she was diagnosed. They said she was hysteric, had hysteria. I can't remember mm. precisely. And... I just thought it was a really incredibly powerful and very simple sort of repurposing of fabric to turn something that would have been a sheet or maybe a dress or something, a tunic, who knows, and you turn it into this, you basically occupy the entire room. And even though they're these sort of delicate frayed strips of fabric, I feel like if I had seen them, that you couldn't walk on them or anything. They had this like amazing power. Yeah, exactly. Just absolute. And so the first time I made this sort of skeletal floor-based rug, it was a very direct kind of tribute to that. I wanted to take this idea of something that can be endlessly reconfigured. And I guess that's, I'm interested quite often in the, in representing in some way or another, the idea of contingency and that the world as we find it is, you know, isn't, it could have been very different Everything could always have been different. And, you know, we all know this. Personally and universally. Personally and universally and historically. And, you know, we all know about counterfactual histories and Mm. all of these things. So I think we have a better sense of that, the kind of provisionality of our histories now maybe than we did. Mm. But maybe that's just the arrogance of being alive at a certain moment. I don't know. But um, so I was just really taken by the kind of provisionality of that 
intervention, which is a quite grand word to describe maybe what she did. And then the idea that all of that fabric can be gathered up and then rearranged. So in that original rug, the provisory rug, I made um, a layout that was dedicated to Mary Lieb. And then I made different layouts dedicated to different people. So it was this sort of adaptable rug that would work differently under different circumstances. And, and again, it was just a way of signifying certain interests. So I dedicated one to an, an astronomer and another one to a contemporary artist. Um, and then I was living in Vienna for a few months doing a residency and I was reading a bit about um, Ludwig Boltzmann, who did really significant work in writing a very important equation um, that I don't really even know what it does. Explains entropy? Mm. Or I looked up uh, what it explains, but I can't exactly say. <laughs> it's No matter how many times I sort of tried to read the potted version of it. Yeah. And that's like, so it felt like somebody who... Um, so somebody who had like given form to, I mean, I think entropy in back then was understood as something to do with, like it was understood in regard to work being done by like steam engines. Oh yeah. And the kind of, yeah, yeah, really kind of practical, the um, dissipation of energy. And then he realizes, uh, so I think the kind of revelation and the connection that he made is that, that the entire universe is becoming increasingly disorderly Mm. as energy is dissipating Mm -hmm. within this system. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I just, I can't let go of that idea. So entropy is everywhere since I read about entropy, which of course it is, but Mm. even there's a mathematician and I am going completely off the point, but there's a mathematician who thinks that life only came into existence to basically accelerate the entropic, uh, Entropic sort of yeah. growth. Oh, we done of the well universe. at that. Yes, <laughs> we are expending energy. High achievers. <laughs> um, uh, wow. But so I, anyway, I thought that it felt like, and it was partly to do with being in Vienna and doing an exhibition there. And it's such a grand city. And it's a kind of snobby city and it's quite taken with its own mm. grandeur. Mm. So I felt like I wanted to make people in Vienna have to look at their feet yeah. and to look down. Good. It's 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 a gilded kind of place. It is, it? and I love it. And mm. yeah, it's wonderful. Sort of loaded bits of it mm. at the same time as well, because it is a problematic place, and they don't want to talk about their history, which is quite interesting. It's not like Germany in that yeah. regard. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I wanted to make. So that was for my kind of for my own amusement, and then also I felt like that this, um, multi permutational rug. I felt like Ludwig Boltzmann should have one of these because as I understand it, because it can be sort of reconfigured in so many states, mm-hmm. it's a kind of high entropy object. Now, I know that's not terribly scientific. Yeah. Oh, it, it's A physicist enough. might it's, give out to me. It's scientific enough for me. That's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> the, just on Mary Lee, Isabel, yeah. I, I, I'm blown away by that story. But just on the point of one of the questions I had for you, right, about you making, right, is just about... That idea of of power and, and, you know, maybe the inspiration for something would be to, that you feel powerless and then maybe the doing of something would empower you. Mm. But, but clearly that's maybe the best example of, of somebody who is powerless empowering themselves in, in, in it's, a really profound way. It's really hard not to see it like that. Mm-hmm. I can't see it any other way because it feels so sort of territorial. Mm-hmm. 
and that act of pulling apart. And all with all that you have, which is, you know, all that nothing, you have. everything is nothing. And, yeah. and then yet it becomes something. And you still have that impulse to sort of take control of your mm. space. I'm, yeah, I find it really moving. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. And really, I just, you know, it was funny because I saw the images and the images somehow stayed with me. I made a note in a notebook. But of course, well, not of course, but I didn't write down where I had seen them. So I remember there was a time when I was sort of trying to find them again. And I thought, oh, she must be some sort of 1930s feminist artist who's just been forgotten about. But no, it was just this woman who was in a psychiatric institution. Not just, but you know yeah. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, it was there. I yeah. was able to attach an entirely different history to her, you know. While I wouldn't want to break the spell we work so hard to cast on this here podcast, I would encourage you all to punch the words Mary Lieb into your search engine the next time you're online. Catching sight of those two images Isabel mentioned will immediately confirm everything she said about them. There's something uniquely powerful going on, a curious mixture of fragility and strength at work. I'm so glad I got to find out about her in the course of these conversations. It confirms again my belief in the poetics of the ordinary, and in this one sure thing that at least I think I know, blessed are the makers. Which is maybe as good a point as any to steer the conversation away from the exhibition at the solstice and back to more general themes relevant to everyone who's in the business of making. The strength of our feelings about the power of art is what brings us here. In Troll to it we are, and as appreciators, it is our role to spread the word about the good stuff. But I'm also intrigued to find out more about how the relentless pursuit of creative fulfilment feels like from the other side. I was interested in where the job satisfaction lies and how long-lasting a sensation it is when it does arise. Something keeps going and then you start to see something in the stuff that you were a bit dismissive yeah. about or you thought wasn't really going anywhere and you sort of see you're making you're making a pattern that you hadn't realised that you'd made or you see connections between things. I don't know, that's all a little vague. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me, yeah. Um, there's an iron line. I don't even know what the right metaphor is, but mm -hmm. there's a point at which when the decision needs to be made, I get mm -hmm. exceptionally decisive. I'm mm -hmm. very kind of stubborn about mm -hmm. how something has to be or how mm -hmm. it can't be. Yeah. Again, like it, it comes out and it's yeah. there. So yeah. Yeah. Just like, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's also to kind of frame it more positively than, cause I guess indecision isn't like highly regarded. Yeah. On the, the list of qualities that you're supposed yeah. to have. And I mean, I have no problem with people being indecisive, except when it comes to like deciding where to go to eat something or something. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think indecisiveness itself is bad, but it's also, I think, about keeping possibility in play for as long as possible. Yeah. And that's a nice thing. You know, you want to keep that sort of openness and that, yeah. you know, the conversation, whether it's with yourself or with the work or with the curator or the space. Yeah. And, you know, God, I wish I could think of a single name, but my brain is just going to draw a blank. And you go to an exhibition, like I feel like there was something in the Douglas High 10 years ago and you have somebody and all they do is make really simple little pencil drawings on found bits of cardboard. And it feels like the most profound and beautiful way of working. And it's so, it's sort of rudimentary and it's everything. And you think, I want to go back to studio and draw on bits of cardboard. Mm -hmm. And that's the best thing that anyone can do. <laughs> and then you go somewhere else and see this like 
really extraordinary and kind of elaborate and immersive and kind of not, I don't like the word spectacular. I don't like things that are trying to be spectacular, but something really all encompassing and extraordinary, you know, and you think that's what I want to do. And I want to work with 17 actors and I'm going to write a play and, and then there'll be this and there'll be that and there'll be, you know, 17 dogs with, and so, and then I come back to the studio and I sort of carry on the way that I work. So sometimes it's about being asked to do things, you know, as well, that sort of prompts the next step. Just on something finally, right? So just on something there about like, if you're not open or engaged or or thrilled at something or, or informed by something, be it the simple thing or the elaborate thing. And the thing yeah. about the spectacular, right? I think that if something is sort of knowingly trying to be spectacular, I'm totally disinterested. Yeah. Whereas there are spectacular things in, in the most ordinary kind yeah. of display or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like, is it possible to make, I mean, this is a question about maybe not about you, but is it possible to, to, to make art and not be open or interested? I mean, I mean, I guess maybe it is in some kind of way, but as in, if you're not being thrilled by something or if you're not growing, can you still be kind of I don't improving? know. I don't think I can. Because oh, yeah. when I go through phases is when, like, I remember getting really panicky at one point in time because when I can't read anything that sort of stimulates me, if I, and I couldn't, I was really dissatisfied with fiction at a particular time, certain kind of fiction. And, and I was, I guess I was kind of low or something, but I was reading Agatha Christie, but I hit... And I love reading Agatha Christie, but you know exactly what you're going to get with Agatha Christie. And the ones that I read, I've read probably most of them already before, if you know what I mean. And I remember panicking when I hit book 10 of my jag, because normally my Christie jags will last two or three books and then I'll be done and I'll be ready, you know, for something else. And it'll be, you know, a week or two of five minutes reading in bed and that's kind of it. Um... And then when I hit book 10 and then what happened was I got asked to give a talk somewhere. So I had to do something and it was kind of a high stakes, slightly alarming situation. So I couldn't just wing it. And that pressure then just forced my brain into activity again. And actually that's when I really started to write about the Leuvenmensch mm-hmm. or, uh, sorry, that was when I really started to write about Lucy. I'd already written a bit about Leuvenmensch, but I, elaborated on a way that I think was a much more interesting thing. So there's a sort of, maybe your brain needs breaks, but I don't, you know, I worry about getting older. Am I, am I getting less receptive and less mm-hmm. interested? Because there's certainly the thing of going into exhibitions mm-hmm. and saying, ah, oh, I've got to sing that before. That's mm-hmm. fine. But you know, mm-hmm. so-and-so and you, you know, you've, but then there's always new things. We've almost reached the end of the line here on this We Are The Makers third edition. To sum up thus far, there's always more to learn and while you're learning, you're growing. I told you at the start how insightful conversations with Isabel are and if you've stayed with us this far, I'm sure it's likely because you agree with that assertion. Part of the motivation for this series is my own feeling that there is a role for the appreciator in the practice of the maker. By doing this, I'm making something in response to work that has moved me in one or all of the many ways art can and does. Art comes alive when it is seen, heard and appreciated. It's something Isabel mentioned with regard to curators in the course of our conversations, but I think it's applicable to appreciators too, and that is that it's our job to stay in love with the work long after 
the maker has moved on as is necessary for them to do. So there's an element of tending to the flame about these We Are the Makers investigations. Implicit in all of it is a firm belief in the value of art. Needless to say, in that regard, Isabel brought lots more by way of reasons to believe. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something I think about the way art sort of mimics the trickiness of life that I'm interested in. Yeah. And I mean, what I've always had a, a problem with in kind of, I don't know, maybe in social terms or something is the sort of demands that a lot of parts of society make on one to be things like consistent and confident and uh, knowing what to do in certain situations. So the kind of, you know, they're kind of all qualities that you'd probably want for your kids if I don't have children, so I don't know. Um, so there's a lot of pretending that goes on in the world um, about, you know, how knowing how to negotiate stuff and how to be uh, a successful human. Yeah, to make maybe yourself not, better. Or to maybe be, not a decent human, but yeah, sort of a successful the, one. Yeah, yeah. And then, I, I know exactly so there's something about that, about, and that, in order to do that, I think you have to ignore a lot of the difficulty of the world and a lot of the strangeness of the world and the weirdness of the, you know, the society and the world and the everything in which you find yourself. So I guess I go to art to experience a sort of amplified version of that weirdness and trickiness and difficulty and that kind of solidarity with going, oh yeah, other people are finding this hard too. So I've no problem saying I find life yeah. kind of hard in a, because it's just fucking peculiar. Um, but I'm also like, I'm very lucky. I'm not finding it hard for all sorts of sort of socio- social reasons that other people are finding it hard, which are much more like I'm talking about a kind of privileged philosophical hardness rather yeah, yeah. than the kind of day-to-day struggles of trying mm-hmm. to feed yourself mm-hmm. or home yourself or your family. Just to, I don't know if I need to make that distinction, but um, so there's something about art that I'm very interested in the way in which it makes reality kind of inconvenient and it interrupts and sort of upsets your worldview in a particular and often very beautiful way because that's, it's like you want to see the sticky underbelly. It's That's the part that I'm interested in, not looking at a beautifully rendered image of a beautifully experienced thing. I mean, that's fine. And that's I'm, Instagram. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I've, it's fine. I've no problem with it. I'm not. No, yeah, like sure. Like I, I was really angry about certain kinds of art when I was in my twenties, yeah. and I really taking a stance. Yeah, like I thought people who painted stripes were, you know, <laughs> that was somehow abhorrent and you know ethically wrong. I don't know and you know maybe it's a pity that some of that anger is gone mm. but I don't think so it's just it's much more live and let live but yeah it's the the trickiness that I want and there's so there's a particular there's a longish story which I won't go into about why I came up with the word inconvenient but I think it's a really I think the world is really hard to love this is the jag that I'm on now and mm. it's hard to sometimes to love being alive and I don't think we're obliged to love being alive in any kind of transcendent sense but um, obviously it's better when you appreciate your being here than when you're finding being here unpleasant or 
miserable or whatever. So I think art is the way that I come at now is I want, I want it to be a way to love the world. And, but I can't love a chocolate box version of it. I can't love a lie, if you know what I mean. What you want to love is all of the precarity and the confusingness and the kind of chaos and not try and clean it up or fix it. Sort of to live with the kind of, the, live with the entropy, mm. live with the increasing disorder. Yeah, to some degree. Actually, not just to some degree, but to a very large one. I think that's a philosophy I can identify with and live by. The skilled way Isabel acknowledges, incorporates and utilises the same precarity, confusion and chaos we all encounter is a measure of her extraordinary work and its importance. These visionary insights puncture the veil and enable us to see through the fog. Our own individual and collective grapples with meaning in this fractured world is an incessant struggle in permanent need of balance and counterpoint. I've said it already on this episode, but it's worth restating once more before we close. More than anything else I know, art is what provides the necessary ballast to stabilise the ship irrespective of how far off course it is steering, listing, or indeed sinking. As long as there are artists building worlds within worlds, there's always somewhere for our heads to go and room for us to breathe. By way of saluting their endeavour, we'll be back with a fourth episode in the series on December 11th. My thanks to the Solstice Arts, Solace Nua, the Curlin Gallery, and most of all, to Isabel Nolan. Goodbye now. was written and presented by Donald Deneen, edited and produced by Ian Cudmore with original music by Ulton O'Brien. This quarterly series was commissioned by Solus Nua in Washington, D.C. Makers, makers, makers.